Welcome to Gov Actually, the podcast about how government works. How it actually works. I'm Dan Tangerlini, Chief Financial Officer of the Emerson Collective, and this is the FedScoop Radio Network. And I'm Danny Werfel from the Boston Consulting Group. We launched this pod to try to get beyond the personalities and the politics. Right. We want to talk about how things actually get done in the government, the people who do it, and the challenges they face. So let's talk. Uh, Danny, I, I hardly recognize you. I certainly don't recognize this place we're sitting in. New studios. The Scoop News We group. must be doing well at, exactly. at Gov Actually. I, I think, uh, I think uh, yes, I think Gov Actually has been helping the Scoop News Group move up to the 14th floor of this I mean, this is like Street. this glass-enclosed penthouse they have up Beautiful. here. Beautiful. Yeah. Look, there's an outdoor terrace. There, yeah, yeah, it's incredible. And and I don't know, Billy Mitchell is never, he looks taller. And, and It's and, very fancy. Yeah. And it has been too long. Way it has too been long. too long. The, and the, and uh, people have the been clamoring. Clam- I was going to use clamoring, uh, clamoring as well. <laughs> okay. Clamoring was my word. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to steal your No, word. it's okay. It's okay. I think we both uh, have heard clamors. Yes. Um, uh, or I think actually people have forgotten us and moved on. There's I don't a new think ep- so. There's a new whole series of cereal out. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we, okay. we have to compete against. And that. Uh, slow burn. There's slow a new burn? slow burn oh, out. I thought that's coming later no, in November. I think it's out. I think I is got it? some kind of okay. message on okay. my okay. iPhone. Yeah. All right. Well, one of the us. The Tupac right. and Biggie. I s- yeah, I saw that situation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would be cool. Yeah. Well, we'll be covering that later. Yes, that Gov- is the uh, Gov actually <laughs> aspects of Tupac and Biggie. Yes. Well, speaking of which, you know, it's it's a shame that we haven't been around because there's so much news to cut. Co- there's so much news. There is news. And as uh, our audience knows, our shtick <laughs> is that we take what's in the news and geekify it and try to give the right down the middle, nonpartisan, kind of technically what's actually going on, how, how does it work right. view of the world. And so... So what I thought we'd do today is there's, you know, with, with everything that's going on with the current um, impeachment process, um, that we talk maybe about whistleblowers. Yes. Because that's a really interesting part of how the government works, federal law. It certainly impacts federal employees, which is a major theme of this podcast, is kind of looking at it through the lens of federal employees. So... Um, not that I am the hugest expert on whistleblowers, but done some research and have had some um, experience with it. So why don't we talk about whistleblowers? Yeah, I think we should talk about whistleblowers. And I, yeah, I think actually in order to talk about it, we have to go back in history. I know both of us, as we were thinking about this, said, okay, like where does this term even come from? And it is actually... It is surprising. Is there a whistle like, involved? There is literally a whistle involved. See, I didn't I mean, go that I, back in I, my research. You yeah, I actually thought it was going to be... No, I didn't. I, I just went to Wikipedia. <laughs> 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 and that's where it starts. But um, the... Uh, tell, tell me about the whist, the original whistle. Uh, it, it's linked to the use of a whistle to alert the public or a crowd about a bad situation. Okay. So that's, that's yes. a quote from Wikipedia. And okay. so... You know, sometimes you get a term and it's like, oh, I think it relates to, you know, I think it relates to what it sounds like. And it, and it doesn't. This one actually, this one actually it, does. It Someone's blowing is. a whistle, which makes sense. Like in a situation where there's like some type of activity that you want to. I mean, today we have sirens and other things, but I could see the whistle being used. Well, my research took me back to 1778. Mm. When the U.S. passed its first whistleblower protection law. But it wasn't called a whistleblower at the time. 
Oh, wasn't? Okay. No, that I don't, don't think it mean. was because it, I'm told, according to Wikipedia, that the, <laughs> that the Janesville Gazette called a policeman who used his whistle to alert citizens about a riot a whistleblower. And that, that was, was after like, 1778, I assume. It was 1883. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So. Got it. And well, then they go into this whole geeky thing about how whistleblower became hyphenated, and, and then later, after Ralph Nader used it, it became a single word. Okay. Well, very early in our country's history, yeah. so two years after Do you our think founding, anyone's listening anymore? I no, think they I. are. <laughs> we'll get to the good stuff. Don't worry. <laughs> but first, got to do the history. Two years after our founding, there was a situation in which a, a naval officer was retaliating against sailors who were reporting harsh treatment of British prisoners during the American Revolutionary War. Yes. And so the U.S. passed a law to protect those people that were reporting out on these harsh, you know, harsh treatments from being retaliated against by their commanding officer. And that started. And then, you know, I don't think we need to walk through the, the whole history, but I think one... Yeah, go ahead. But actually, before, I mean, we don't have to dig into that one, but I think the reason why it was kind of a front and center issue for the Continental Congress was because in 1773, Benjamin Franklin, and this is really fascinating considering what we're dealing with now, Benjamin Franklin had somehow come into possession of communications between the governor, the colonial governor of Massachusetts, and, you know, the British Parliament basically saying that you know we gotta we gotta crank down we gotta clamp down on these colonists we gotta we gotta come up with ways to you know handle this situation better and that information had been leaked to benjamin franklin so franklin shared the information back with the the massachusetts um uh the elected body of you know for the citizens of massachusetts and said look you can't it was like you got to keep you got to have a closed hearing in which you share that information wow with members of the of the i don't know what you would call it the congress or the parliament or um so you needed like a classified environment you needed a classified environment because they thought that this was so damaging that they wanted to be absolutely careful not just damaging to the governor but damaging to the to the the eventually the person who had leaked the correspondence they didn't want it to cause all kinds of you know negative impacts on the person who had shared the information they'd shared the information because they thought it was so deeply concerning well that then kind of blew up because someone in the in the closed space perhaps even sam adams that's a name we recognize. Yeah, just for the beer. Further leaked <laughs> it, like further shared it, figured okay. out a way to share it a little more widely, um, and it uh, it caused such a such a dramatic effect back in England. It even led to a duel. Oh, really? Yeah. The governor later had to resign, um, and to this day, there's still a question how Ben Franklin got the letters. Yeah. And there's well, the of dynamic of like kind of reporting out on something you see and like having to do it in a, and you want to have that incentive because you know if someone sees something you want them to have a process to report on it if it's you know it's bad behavior but then you don't you don't want the retaliation it's just it just makes sense not only for the government but just in any organizational construct in any societal construct you want to incentivize 
people to, to, to report bad behavior and have that investigated. But obviously, there's tensions involved in, in it, and so it has to. So over time, I think we've tried to come up with the right set of processes to allow, in this case, federal employees to report out things that they see that trouble them. Right, and I think that there's this uh, general. What's interesting is that we're now at this this intersection of whether whistleblowing is, you know, per se good. Um, and I think leading up, you know, leading up to the present time, there was a notion that it was, in fact, per se good. Anyone who is going to have the courage to stand up and say, I've seen this issue, there's been this building sense that that's, uh, that's a, a per se good. Well, that's a powerful tool for oversight and rooting out problems. And, and one place where it's been particularly effective is with the False Claims Act. Mm-hmm. So what the False Claims Act does is it basically, this is like, you know, when, when the government gets overbilled. The but, False Claims Act has an amazing history dating back to the Civil War. Oh, oh no. <laughs> well, it let's does. get the, yeah, right. let, maybe that's a different podcast. I don't know. But, but, but the, the way the False Claims Act works is that if you uh, bill the government incorrectly, you can be subject to very significant penalties, actually. There's a, there's a pretty severe set of punitory, uh, punitary damages or punitary implications of billing the government wrong, right? But we don't have an ability as the government to really uh, track all of that comprehensively. But if there are employees inside of the contractors who are potentially overbilling the government and they report it out, you know, at back, back, I think it was Senator Grassley who kind of championed this. Like, we want those government contractors to report misbillings when they see it. And so there was a lot of activity to protect whistleblowers working for government contractors. It was actually, and when they did that, it really increased compliance and and the ability for the government to track false claims. There's actually an incentive too if you report. Um, that kind of overbilling, and then the government doesn't do anything to actually solve the problem. You can actually file a, a claim, um, and you are entitled to some of the uh, right, right. And so this has been—I know the False Claims Act's been around since the 1860s, and right. but I think it was it was Grassley and more recently where there was a lot of energy p- placed around it, and then. Um, with even though there've been whistleblower protections for a long time in 1989. Congress enacted the Whistleblower Protection Act, which really kind of like is is kind of the modern way in which federal employees are th- think about whistleblowers. And then, even further than that, in 1998, Congress passed another law to deal with whistleblowers in the intelligence community. Mm. Because when you're whistleblowing in the intelligence community, there's more complicating factors sure. because the information that you have is, is sensitive. Class- is could be right. classified, and and the the inappropriate divulgence of classified material can can lead to very serious uh, yeah. uh, criminal so so the, so the intelligence community whistleblower protection act of 1998 really sets out a very prescriptive and carefully thought through process for people in the intelligence community that want to whistleblow and it's really the um, the inspector general that comes in and plays a key role in terms of you you are you know in theory, I think the way it's supposed to work, feel like there's a, there's a safe harbor for you to go to the inspector general to report something that you think may be wrong. And then the inspector general 
and then you're protected. Your identity is protected. You're protected from retaliation. And the inspector general provides a, you know, an independent assessment of whether the thing that you did or thing that you saw is something. If it's nothing, if they look at it and they're like, no, you think you saw it, but you really didn't, no harm, no foul, thank you for reporting. You know, it's the classic, like, if you see something, say something, if you're in an airport and you see something suspicious, suspicious, like you think someone left a bag in a suspicious place, the, I think TSA wants you to report it. They'd rather you report it and be wrong than not think they're not report it. They'd rather the, the, the extra work of having a TSA agent have to scramble to look at this package. So, so there's a lot of like promotion out there for the public to be a part of this challenge. And it's okay to be wrong once it, you know, as, and because there's a process by which someone will investigate it and determine whether it's right or wrong. And so that's, as, when I was a federal employee, you know, I never whistleblow anything, never had to, had to or had that situation. But I felt like if I had to whistleblow, I could go to an inspector general and the inspector general would provide that extra layer of like, okay, Danny, you're either crazy or you're not crazy. We're going to look at it. Probably crazy. I'm probably crazy. And I probably wish that I am crazy because I hope to say like, I think I saw something bad. Hopefully I didn't. The inspector general would review it and my identity would be protected. And then if it's nothing, no harm, no foul, I go back to my job, but I did my duty to report. If it's something significant, then the inspector general takes it from there. And maybe I'm some type of witness later in a deposition or hearing, but I've essentially done my job at the point that I've handed the baton to the inspector general to go look into it. And that's why, um, and I know we've been been looking around for the right uh, inspector general to bring to uh, the Gov Actually podcast, uh, I think we should dive into it. But it's interesting, the Inspector General um, Act of 1978 kind of created the initial 12 offices of Inspector General. So it's the same time as that Whistleblower Protection Act, that initial one. No, 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 actually. I thought you said 78. No, no, 1989. 89. The Civil Service Reform Act was passed in 1978, and that created the Merit System Protection Board, OPM, Federal Labor Relations Authority, which did kind of advance a lot of employee rights. Again, it's not like there weren't whistleblower protections before 1989, but I think in 1989 it really kind of solidified what the process is Mm -hmm. and clarified what the protections are to federal employees who whistleblow. And if you think about it, in all these instances, it's really Congress trying to gain an additional set of insights so that they can provide oversight over the executive branch. Yes. It really enables people then to be able to share information that otherwise might be prevented for share, from sharing with Congress. I mean, there, there are, you know, the hotline, if you will, like inspector generals, the way they operate is they, you know, they have, they have a strategy and a plan of what they're going to audit, what they're going to investigate, what they're going to focus on. But a huge part of their portfolio is by t- is on tips, like any law enforcement right. entity. They get a phone call, they get a tip that something's going wrong, someone's committing fraud. Sometimes that tip is coming from outside government. You know, someone sees something and says something and investigate, and that has led to billions of dollars of fraud being uncovered. Sometimes there's a tip from from inside government. Sometimes someone from government goes to the House Government Oversight or Senate Government Oversight Committee and tips. I think that you you want that, but you also want safeguards to make sure that we don't get ourselves into a big frenzy over something that was misunderstood, misconstrued, you know, and so so the key to making this work 
is having a very clear process of checks and balances and reviews so that once the whistleblower reports in, there's a kind of a due diligence and a process to validate or invalidate what the whistleblower is reporting. This gets to a, a very, it's kind of like a core and inherent tension between Article 1 and Article 2, between the uh, uh, Congress and the executive. This idea of what is um, what is the Congress entitled to in, in terms of information and what can they compel the executive to tell them. And the Inspector General, I've been told by some uh, 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 lawyers, the, the construct of the Inspector General, this notional independence that they have from yep. the executive is actually constitutionally suspect. No one has actually challenged it. But the question is, can you actually have an executive employee who has a separate non-presidential uh, hierarchical connection to Congress? And in yeah. every inspector general, they have the theoretical right to report directly to Congress without any review yes. and approval by That's true. OMB. Yeah, or yes, or the White House. I've lived that, you know, when I was at the IRS or any agency that I've been involved in. You know, the inspector general can go right to the Hill. You know, presidents or secretaries can fire the inspector general, but to do For it... Cause. Yeah, but to do it, you have to give a heads up to the Hill. There's a whole separate process, and there's a council of inspector generals. Um, it used to be called the PCIE, but it's I, a SIGI. SIGI now. Yeah. The, I can't remember what that stands for, actually. Council, Council for Inspector, Inspector Generals General. for Integrity and Efficiency. Nice. There we go. You do and, Yeah, I do. Anyway, the SIGI, this Council for Inspector Generals for Integrity and Efficiency, has a, has a committee that looks into IG malfeasance mm -hmm. or when there's a situation where an IG is being accused of, of a fireable offense. So there's a whole but again, process that goes in. But again, it's a fascinating kind of separation from the, the notion that the president is actually oversees yeah. the personnel of the executive yeah. branch. Well, I mean, there would be, I mean, there is a dangerous potential implication for a secretary or president to fire an inspector general because it could be seen through a certain lens and a certain con you know set of facts as obstruction of justice. Yeah, firing a special prosecutor. For firing instance. a inspector general that's investigating you on something, right. you know, and, and so, and so there is, there's a there's a kind of an internal check and balance between the inspector general, but but that is why the inspector general is such a safe haven for a whistleblower or someone to go provide you know it's it's not only it has some independence it has the ability to take in that information and have no duty or obligation to report or disclose that to the leadership it can take things directly to congressional committees it does you know it, it, it typically and often refers things to the justice department so there is kind of at some point an executive branch connective element that gets to within a more direct reporting of the president and the leadership. But for the most part, there's a, it's, it, it, it's supposed to, and it often does operate as a safe harbor for someone to come report. And in addition to it being safe because you can stay, you, you can re remain anonymous and you're afforded certain protections, you can go to sleep that night that you report knowing that someone's going to investigate it further. Just like my example in the airport, you saw a package that looked weird 
you have no idea if that package is suspicious or not. Out of a complete abundance of caution, you went and go tell the, told its TSA agent. And as you're walking away towards your gate, you can relax in knowing that the TSA agent is going to go figure out if there's anything wrong with that package or not. Versus you walk to your gate, you wonder if that package, suspicious package, is something you should have reported on. The incentive that we try to create is see something, say something, report it. If we have too many people reporting suspicious packages, the well, process become inefficient. So we have to kind of and calibrate. That's, and that's the fear that, that someone who's very nervous, you know, doesn't like the looks of you and therefore reports your package. Or, yes. or someone who, you know, doesn't like you reports your package. Yes. Well, that's And then where... turns, takes you just walking through the airport and drops you into some giant, you know, quasi-legal process of yes. people ripping open your package and asking you lots of questions. And there's the tension, because there are always ex exceptions to the general rule. There, there are policy tensions here. It could be that someone that doesn't like you decides to whistleblow on you. It could, you know, there are all types of risks associated with this framework. But for the most part, you know, I think the process tends to work because... It, there's this investigatory layer that goes in, and it, and it'll be it'll be a pain. Believe me, if someone whistle blew on you uh, for the wrong reasons, whether it was a personal vendetta or they profiled you inappropriately in some way, that's not great, you know. But the process, but but before you are sent off into some type of you know, trouble, purgatory, timeout, if you will, the someone will, will investigate it. And typically it will be the inspector general. So uh, we, we're going to jump off for a break right now. Yes. Um, but before we do, have you ever been involved in any whistleblower-related, uh, uh, you know, have you have been, been close in, to a whistleblower I have been in, in and around situations in which there was a whistleblower report and I was made aware of it and it was investigated and, you know, I don't, I was, you know, I was never, you know, I was obviously involved in one of the major government scandals of the last 10 years when I went to the IRS after the, the, uh, the inspector general released a report, but that really didn't have a whistleblower implication, but there was a lot of dimensions of in that moment of what are IRS employees channels to report bad behavior when they see it. And so did a lot of, you know, thinking and reviewing of that, but I have never, been inextricably involved in a whistleblower. Actually, have you? actually, you have. The I GSA have. scandal was kicked off by a whistleblower. Oh well, there you go. And I, see, I didn't uh, even realize. And that. then in local government, I was, uh, I testified in a case that actually someone claimed whistleblower protection yeah. and was proven not to be a whistleblower yeah. case. Well, when we come back, let's talk about that experience at GSA. Sure. And whether you felt like the policy tensions that we described correctly were. Like where it went right and where it couldn't have gone and, right. And then I can talk at a very high level about this case where someone used whistleblower protection to try to uh, to try to avoid a dismissal. Oh, okay. See, there's there's tensions here. Yeah. Very good. All right. Gov actually is brought to you by the good folks at the FedScoop Radio Network. Be sure to check out what is happening on the forefront of government technology innovation at FedScoop, as well as the most important issues facing cybersecurity professionals at CyberScoop. GovActually is also supported by the Boston Consulting Group and the Center for Public Impact. All right, we're back, and we're going to talk about... Um, conferences. 
conferences, personal experiences. Las Vegas. Little, you know, Let's finally so talk about Las Vegas. You, no, we can't. Talk, no, I'm kidding. Because so what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas? No one was talking about Las Vegas. And someone was at the Vegas conference and said. And looked around and said, and looked what around is going and said, on? This is insane. Right? Yeah. These, these giant rooms and bacon wrapped shrimp. And, and you know, how, how is this happening? On the taxpayer's dime. On the taxpayer's dime, in the midst of a global financial crisis. And so um, they raised concern. It was actually... This, the, a whistleblower. The, it was the deputy administrator raised concern within oh, the so, organization. So this person did not stay anonymous. She did not stay anonymous. Okay. Yeah, and she was actually... I guess she had the option to stay anonymous. Uh, but I did. guess. Um, uh, uh, but she brought it then, first the administrator, and there was some question about you know the level of response and then she brought it to the IG and the IG started an investigation and um, after you know after the whole thing kind of blew up um, uh, I was in several hearings where she was heralded as a um, an example of a very very positive yes. example of someone who when they saw something said something and didn't didn't like what they saw and raised the concern. So it was the deputy regional administrator? No, it was the deputy administrator, administrator of GSA. Of GSA. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, you can go back if you want to dig into the C-SPAN files, C-SPAN 3. Uh, and, and watch you testify? Well, you can watch, uh, you can watch the deputy administrator being complimented yeah. for her whistleblowing. By both sides of the aisle, By I both bet. sides of the aisle. Yeah. Absolutely. And this idea that... Um, and the, the big question that kept coming up was, why didn't anyone else say anything? Yeah, it's a great why question. Why weren't people, why weren't other Because when you read that up? Inspector General report, it's a fascinating read. And it's really kind of one page after the other of, oh my gosh, what were they thinking? What were we thinking as a government? Yeah, and what's interesting, the, the, the Vegas thing is definitely where, where people focus on, um, because that's what started it. But as you dug deeper, you realize that there are other... Um, deeply problematic activities happening within the agency. For instance, in Region 9, they had taken this um, point system that you could give someone if they had done something good with you, you could give them points, and then the points they could go and trade in for things at the point store, like a GSA mug or GSA t-shirt. Well, the regional administrator thought mugs and t-shirts were kind of lame, so he went out and got iPods and um, oh wow and things of interest, deep interest in value. And what happened then is, well, allegedly, um, that person may have taken several of the iPods, <laughs> um, but then people started getting very. Um, uh, they started mixing up their incentives and started, you know you know, trading work for points. Yeah. And it just, it just, it just devolved. It, oh, it just devolved. And That's it's, bad. um, uh, what was interesting though, was that I talked to a lot of people in the agency who were really kind of horrified and frustrated, but they felt so, um, threatened by the environment that they didn't raise their voice. Yeah. And so, uh, well, it's interesting that the whistleblower in this case was so high level yes. in the organization. Right. And felt felt empowered at that level. Well, perhaps that was the point. It almost took someone at that level to feel empowered. Now, I know you might not know the fact pattern, but was the fact pattern here that she first went to the administrator and others and they didn't do anything about it? That was the argument. Okay. That was the argument. 
that they kind of said, no, it's not so bad. It's not so yeah. bad. And, and then as the IG report and investigation was developing, they still was a sense like, mm, not so bad. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I remember being at OMB at the time. And I think one of the things that was so head scratching for us was why we were not brought into the loop sooner mm-hmm. because we didn't learn about it until days before the IG report was going to be released. Well, and, and we think, were given a draft of the report. Yeah. And I remember someone in OB Council's office dropped the report on my desk. This was days before the report was released. And yeah. I was reading it and my heart was pounding while I was reading it <laughs> because I said, this is, this is insane and this is a big deal. Right. And so it was really interesting that GSA had waited so long to bring us under the tent I, I, but to I let think us know what was going on. Kind of a natural tendency to say, well, let's see if we can fix it. Maybe it's not so bad. I think that there was there was lots of tension within the organization between the GSA and the IG. And the IG, there because remember is, the yeah. IG before, I mean, <laughs> the IG had a couple of administrators, you know, notched on their belt i mean oh they, the hatch act violation and the, the hatch act violation yeah, yeah. the gsa administrator before yeah um yeah it's it's kind of a dangerous job to be a gsa administrator yeah well there's yeah well, there's a lot of there's a lot of activity that, that you right. have to you have to monitor in that yeah. in that environment but yeah that so so there it feels like it feels like the process worked effectively mm-hmm. um were you involved in any situations as the GSA administrator where there was a whistleblower where it was well, like a false positive? We we encouraged then from that point forward. In fact, one of the first acts I took was to write a joint letter with the IG. Yeah. And I remember I suggested that to him. And um, um, uh, he was wondering, did that challenge his independence? So he took a minute to think about it. But to his credit, Brian Miller said, no, I think that's a great idea. And and demonstrating, you know, remember in the audit? Yeah. Uh, in all our audits, in all the um, audits of the uh, of federal government agencies, and remember the IG was really started to be the auditor of the yes. agency. They would sometimes often contract out the the work to a to an accounting firm. Yeah, but their initial, the initial um creation of the IG as a as a component was usually the audit function of the agency and then it got kind of peeled off as the IG and then they started contracting out the audit um but they would always ask the question of the tone at the top what is the tone at the top do you feel within this organization they would ask people within the organization do you feel you could report a problem do you feel like there's and so what we wanted to do is clearly establish in written form for the entire agency a clear statement a tone at the top saying that if you see something problematic, it is, um, it is expected and it's your duty to report it to your supervisor. And if you don't feel your supervisor responds, responds in a way that, that suggests that they're going to look into it and try to resolve it, then it's your duty to report it to the IG. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, we lit up the IG's phones a little bit because people were concerned that they, you know, they didn't want to be the person who didn't say something for a while. So the IG went chasing down a bunch of rabbit holes. Um, But they also found some stuff, too. Yeah. Um, uh, I think, you know, there there can be, um, there's concern that people will use the very powerful, you know, pull the fire alarm and the potential for then protections 
as a kind of last ditch effort if you're if you're not succeeding in your job. Yes, yeah, so you, you would hope that the inspector general has seen that before and can ferret that stuff out. A legitimate allegation versus an illegitimate one. But it's a it's a great delay of game technique, yeah. and it is a possible then um, argument you could take to the MSPB later that you were just being. Um, you were being uh, retaliated, retaliated against. against. Yeah. What's interesting about the um, the dynamic between an inspector general and an agency is there's a there's a tendency uh, for the agency who's being in, inspected to feel like you know to have a to have a, a deep skepticism of what of what the ins- inspector general's finding, like a like a, like a sense that uh, that they're just out. We're going to get a bad rap no matter what. And part of that is this is interesting thing from my IRS experience that, you know, a, a, an audit with a balanced due of zero is considered an unsuccessful audit, right? It mean because audit resources are limited. And so if you're going to go and audit something, the, 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 the decision layer that goes into who we're going to audit and when we're going to audit needs to be good so that you're not wasting, so you're finding the problems. So if you go and you, and you, and you go and you audit someone and you have a balanced due of zero, that means you probably didn't choose wisely. I mean, you missed something. You, well, or, or you didn't choose wisely. In other mm. words, it's like, oh, that sounds like good. And from one perspective, it's like that's really good news. The IRS audited this big company and and found it clean. We have a clean company. That's good news. But from that, but from the IRS perspective, they know just based on analysis and other 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 research and evidence that there's a three hundred billion dollar plus tax gap. And so they, so the auditors, with a very limited set of resources, have to kind of figure out where all that problem is. So if they go in, they've looked under the wrong rock if they have a balance of zero. And, and so, so the culture is for audit and inspection that if you don't find anything, that it was some type of failure. And so therefore, that dynamic becomes we have to, you know, they're, they're, they have to find something. So they're, they're kind of making it into something that it really doesn't need to be a big deal, but they're incentivized to make it into a big deal. And that, I think, creates this environment where you're pushing back on the inspector general and reluctant. So so as these reports are coming out on Las Vegas, I could see the mentality like they're overblowing it, they're trying to find something, this is a nothing burger. But the reality is if you just, if you're an outsider in looking in and you're objective, you're like, no, this is not a nothing burger. Right. This is a big deal. Right. And I think you, you've hit the nail on the head because... The inspector general doesn't write reports saying, what a fantastic job you're doing. Yeah. Right? And the inspector general doesn't write reports and saying, hey, they really tried to innovate here. They really tried to make an experiment, but they, you know, they tried and they failed. But, you know, they learned these six lessons. That's not, yeah. that's not how an inspector general report reads. And I've actually thought that there should be another IG. It should be called the innovation general. And that should write, you know, reports that say, you know, agencies should try new stuff or agencies are not pushing the envelope because people fear that if they make a mistake, they're going to get an IG report. It'll go right to Congress. They'll have to do a hearing. OMB will get mad and say, what what are you doing in the news? Yeah. And so there is this concern that, you know, inspectors general, um, the you know, the potential for whistleblowing uh, could create an environment where already um, nervous and constrained agency leadership is going to feel like it's another vector of attack. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, I am, you know, I think we are in a situation right now today with it. I'll be hard pressed to think of a more high profile whistleblower issue that's surfaced in, in the news and in the national consciousness. And so I think it's really important that, and I've, I've seen a lot, I'm, you know, I've seen a lot of coverage of this, which is good, that people step back and they understand, like, what is a whistleblower and why do we have it and not have a negative connotation of whistleblowers, but a positive connotation, because as a setting aside this particular case, as a general rule, it is a key part of a, of a check and balance in our government that makes our government work better. And it incentivizes people to do the right thing. Because yeah. if you do the wrong thing, there is people are watching. Well, and if you if you do dive into the Wikipedia site, you'll see that it's very <laughs> easy, quickly, and it's a it's a really long article. Oh, that, yeah, I'm a big fan you know, of Wikipedia. Yeah, that goes you know, and I think people should probably you know support them. Um, but uh, uh, but uh, it goes into very quickly the negative consequences of whistleblowing, and that whistleblowing generally doesn't end well for the whistleblower yeah in both the private sector and the public sector and most oftentimes in the public sector when it doesn't end well it it doesn't end well um with a um with some kind of prosecutorial um aspect to it yeah the other interesting thing is that in general and i'm gonna speak in generalities um that to be a whistleblower you have to be a little disaffected Right, you have to say, I explain that. I don't like what I'm seeing. I'm unhappy with this environment. I don't, you know, I'm right. concerned Something about the way this is you. going. Yeah. So already you've kind of pulled yourself apart from the rest of the, the organization, and organizations tend to react negatively yeah. to the disaffected and and those who raise protests. Yeah, I mean that's why. I mean, it's upsetting that 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 the whistleblower track record is. That, that it ends up being a, a, a significant net negative for them because, because I, first of all, I, putting myself in that position, I would hope that, that I would have the courage to come forward if I, if I believe that something was wrong. I also want to, I would also believe that I would have confidence that, um, that, that in handing over the information, I'm handing it to a process that's really going to attack it from many angles and figure it may be that I misheard. It may be that I misconstrued. It may be. And so, so there's going to be an internal struggle that I'm going to have. Do, do I report it? It may be so obvious that it's just a no-brainer and, and I will go to sleep at night and go to my grave knowing that I did the right thing. But it may be that I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of a gray area, and I have to make a decision. Do I come forward? And um, and I think, and you can debate this, but I think the right public policy or the right public administration outcome for any government, state, local, federal, is that you want the employees to err on the side of caution and report it. But in order to make that work, they have to be reporting it into a system that can, with fidelity and efficacy, investigate and figure out whether there's any there there. And if they figure out that there's there there and they decide, that entity decides to bring it forward, then the accountability should shift to them. Because now the whistleblower should be kind of, you know, firewalled from accountability because they did their job. And if it was, an, it was, it was a thing they shouldn't have reported, they got it wrong, they misheard it, then they've handed it to an investigatory unit who now owns 
the answer in terms of whether this is something worth pursuing or not, or worth making a big deal right. or not. I think that is, in my opinion, the right public policy, but it relies on the courage of the whistleblower, the whistleblower making a judgment call in a gray area, but the biggest, it, it, it's, it's important that investigatory layer is good. If that investigatory layer is good, then, then the process really plays out better. So can I tell you about the time when I was a whistleblower and it blew up in my hand? Tell me. Uh, I was the... How many years ago is this? Uh, this would have been 1998 okay. or 99. I was the CFO of the police department here in D.C. Yes. And uh, I this got a... the juicy stuff. I no. got a call. Yeah, this is a little episode of The Wire here. I got a, <laughs> I got a call from uh, a duty sergeant in one of the, the districts. And he's like, hey, our... Um, Confidential Informants Fund is uh, is out of money. Can you get me some cash for the Confidential Informants Fund? And, you know, I I, I was kind of new to this. I'm like, tell me what that is. And I was like, well, you know, we get people on the street who, you know, yep. for and I'm like, oh wow, it's straight out of like TV. Yes. And it's like, yeah, they you know they get this stuff from you know real life. And I'm like, well, how much is normally in? And it's like, oh, that's fifteen hundred bucks, and it's replenished over time. Um, and I'm like really how do we replenish it it's like well when it's empty we call you and i'm like do you keep any records I'm like oh yeah there's like there's a list of things here um the sergeant who would normally run it was out she was on vacation and i'm like well that's interesting i never heard about this so i sent someone out to replenish the funds um cash you know this cash and government you don't see cash very often no. cash is People get nervous about cash. Yeah. So they go out there, and then what they found was in the confidential informants fund in the little lockbox that had the cash were a series of IOUs written to the other, to the sergeant who had been running the fund. Oh, gosh. And so I immediately, I'm like, I, I can't touch this. So I called the IG. The IG did a full-blown investigation of all the confidential informants funds and found that... Um, Let's just put it this way. The administration wasn't as tight as we would like. But how did it blow up in your face? So the IG report got written. Yes. And it came back with a long series of very, very like pointed recommendations saying how poorly the CFO had done their job in teaching the people how to use the confidential informants <laughs> and establishing policies. I got That's five amazing. or six recommendations. No point did it say that the CFO had called the IG and asked them to come and investigate this. No point did they said that the CFO is brand new. And at no point did they say that any officer had done wrong by writing themselves an IOU the out of the cash. perfect poetic justice. Of it was government oversight. It was. I yeah. felt, you know, like ah, oh, this is a classic example of no goat deed yeah. goes unpunished. Yeah, that's really funny. I, I that's a great story. And I now, would still I, go back and call the though? IG again. I, so when when I uh, send a tweet to promote this episode, can I write in the tweet? Dan Tangerlini's the whistleblower. Sure. To 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 learn more, listen to the yeah. podcast. <laughs> the, oh, oh, that, that's no. Please don't. Do I, that. I won't yeah. do that. There are certain people out there who are 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 maybe a little aggressive. Yeah, 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 like, yeah. yeah. So, and plus, you don't work in the administration. Well, yeah, and have no access. Certain people would not probably know that. And like, yes, not in the they room. would immediately. You know, that's all you would need. Yeah, that's that's a terrific. Well, thank you for sharing. You are. 
I, it's you're one a hero. My, it's one of my favorite stories. I always about knew what, you were the, a hero. what the risks are associated with speaking up. Billy, when you produced this for Final Distribution, can you sample in? Did you ever know you're my hero? Mm-hmm. Song as we're rolling out. Probably uh, not because you probably have to pay. You'd have to pay a the ASCAP and BMI. Yeah, it costs way too much. This yeah. is a very low value. Very production. low budget. Not yeah. not like these offices though. This right. I mean, you think we could afford the royalty here exactly. for uh, for the yeah. hero song? Anyway, Dan, I think uh, and this is an important discussion, important dialogue. Whenever anything like this happens, something big, something important, there's like 97% of the politics and 3% of the policy and the, you know that, that's out there in the in the discussion. And you know whether you know maybe we do something on on impeachment, not this specific issue, but why is that in there? What is it as a check and balance? You know, really just like using this as an opportunity for the civics lesson of why these things are put in place and and what do we have to what considerations are at play to make sure that the goodness of why they're there remain. And if there are elements that are that are creating problems that they're fixed and, and addressed. And so this is the platform to have that type of conversation. Uh, this is this is the reason why we have the Gov Actually podcast. This is it. This is what is at, what are, what does a whistleblower actually mean? And, so. and even though he's in these incredible fancy offices, and I would think he would be, you know, think himself much beyond us. Billy keeps showing up for it. So thank you, Billy. Thank you, Billy. All right, all right. Let's do the next podcast like sooner than we did this one. I don't. I don't think I'm the long pull in the tent here. It's probably me. Yeah, <laughs> it is me. I will be better. That is my commitment. Well, it's not even New Year's, and you're already making resolutions. I'm making resolutions, yeah. That's a good sign. All right, awesome. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening to GovActually. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us at GovActuallyPod, or you can write to Danny at Danny at GovActually.com, or to me at Dan at GovActually.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to GovActually Podcast on iTunes and write a review. That's how we get pushed up further and more people can hear about us. Thanks again.